0: Section 6 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Whitman. Chapter 2. The New World by E.J. Payne. The story of the age of discovery naturally merges in that of the New World, the principal fruit of the strenuous labors to which that age owes its name. The history, in the wider sense, of the New World begins in the remotest ages, for the habits of life and thought displayed among its aborigines at the time of the discovery and its indigenous languages which stand nearer to the origin of speech than any group of languages in the old world carry the ethnologist back to a stage far more archaic than is indicated in any other quarter of the globe it's history insofar as history is a mere record of specific facts and events known to have taken place in particular districts in a definite succession and admitting of being distinctly connected with particular peoples and personages is extremely limited. Its modern historical period, in fact, coincides very nearly with that of the Old World's modern history, a circumstance partly due to the fact that its advanced peoples, though by no means devoid of the historical instinct, possessed but limited means of keeping historical records and partly to the circumstance that their history, such as it was, consisted in changes of ascendancy happening in comparatively quick succession, in the course of which the memory of events connected with past dominations soon lapsed into oblivion, or dwelt but faintly and briefly in the remembrance of those peoples who happened to be dominant at the Spanish conquest. Although the general series of American migrations beginning with the entry of man into the new world from the old in the remote age when Asia and America, afterwards parted by the shallow strait of Bering, were continuous, as passed out of knowledge, it may be assumed to have proceeded on the principle of the stronger tribe expelling the weaker from districts yielding the more ample supplies of food. There is good reason to conclude that the peoples and tribes of low stature who still occur sporadically in various parts of America, represent the earliest immigrants. At the discovery, tribes and nations of tall stature, great physical strength and endurance, and a certain degree of advancement in the arts of life were dominant in all the districts most favorable for human habitation. And it is possible, in some measure, to trace the movements by which their migrations had proceeded and the steps by which they acquired dominion over lower or less powerful peoples in whose midst they settled. Foremost among these dominant peoples stand the Nahuitlaca, or Mexicans, who had their chief seat at Mexico on the plateau of Anahuac, and the aymara Quichua, or Peruvians, whose center of dominion was at Cusco in the Andes. On the subjugation of these two peoples, the Spanish-American Empire was founded. Next in importance, but of lower grade, come the Caribs of Venezuela and the West Indian Archipelago, the first ethnological group encountered by Colombo and the only one known to him, the tupi of Brazil, who had conquered and occupied most of the shore which fell to the lot of Portugal, the Iroquois, who held the district colonized by France, and the Algonquins, who occupied with less power of resistance to invasion, that colonized by England. It is remarkable that all these nations appear once to have been maritime and fishing peoples, to have multiplied and developed their advancement in the immediate neighborhood of the sea, and thence to have penetrated and settled various tracts of the interior. We trace them to three maritime districts, all extremely favorable to practice in fishing, navigation, and exploration. One, the Nahuatlaka, Iroquois, and Algonquins to British Columbia. Two, the Aymara, Kichua, and the Tupi Guarani to the ancient Argentine Sea, a vast body of salt water which at no very remote period filled the Great Plain of Argentina, and to the chain of Great Lakes which once existed to the north of it, Three, the Caribs to the Orinoco, whence they spread by a natural advance to the West Indian archipelago, and probably to the valley of the Mississippi, where one branch of them, at no very remote period before the discovery, perhaps founded large agricultural pueblos, still traceable in the earthworks, which in many places lined the banks of that great river and its tributaries, and threw up the animal mounds, which are among the most curious monuments of ancient America. The Natwudlaka, or civilized people, Nahua meaning rule of life, Tlakatil, or the plural Tlaka, meaning man, appear to have originally dwelt at no great distance from the Iroquois and Algonquins, on the North American coast opposite Vancouver Island where their peculiar advancement had its first development. With them, the history, in the ordinary sense, of Aboriginal America begins. The Nahuatlaka alone, among American peoples, possessed a true, though inaccurate, chronology and kept painted records of contemporary and past events. Pinturas, preserved at Tezcuco variously assigned the years 387 and 439 of the Christian era, as the date of the earliest migration to the south from maritime lands far to the north of California. A more probable date, about 8780, was furnished to the earliest Spanish enquirers, as the time when the first swarm of the Aquahawke, or strongmen, arrived in Anahuac from Acohuacan their previous seat northward of Salisco, founded the pueblos of Toyan and Cinco, and entered the Mexican valley, where they settled at Cujacan and Cohualichan, and built on an island in the lake a few huts, which later grew into the Pueblo of Mexico. By a long subsequent immigration were founded the Tecponic Pueblos in the southwestern corner of the lake, to which Mexico was once tributary, and on whose subjugation by Mexico, the dominion founded by the Conquistadores, was established about a century before the conquest. The Tecponic Pueblos, five in number, the principal one being Azcabuzalco, subjugated a rival confederacy on the opposite shore, headed by Tezcuco, about 1406. In this conquest, they were materially assisted by the people of two villages, Tenochtitlan, and Tlatelolco, founded on the island of Mexico nearly a century before by a wandering tribe of non-Natwetlacan origin, to whom the Tecponics had given the name of Azteca, or Crane People. Over these lake villages, after the Tezcucans had been subdued by their aid, the Tecponics maintained a relentless tyranny, which at length produced a revolt, in the course of which the Mexican villagers obtained a complete victory. The Tezcucans, who rose against their Tecponic conquerors shortly afterwards, 1431, regained their liberty, and the two Mexican pueblos entered into an alliance with Tezcuco, in which Tlacopan, a Tecponic pueblo which had remained neutral during the struggle, was also included. This confederacy conquered and considerably enlarged the dominion acquired by the Tecponic Confederacy, and held in subjection a large and populous tract extending from the Atlantic to the Pacific and containing all the best parts of the southern extremity of North America, where it narrows towards the isthmus of Tehuantepec. One important district only was excluded from it. This was a highland tract held by Tlaxcalan, Huetzalcínco, and Choloyan, pueblos of the Nahuatlca, founded in early times and never subjugated either by the Tecponics or by the confederated pueblos who succeeded to their dominion. At the Spanish conquest, Choloyan, the largest and most prosperous of the three, was in alliance with the Lake Pueblos, and there is little doubt that that Tlaxcallion and Huetzalcínco would have been admitted to the same status but for the Mexican rule of life, which demanded war every 20 days, ostensibly as a means of procuring sacrifices for the sun and other gods, but really to provide the material for the cannibal feast by which each sacrifice was terminated. Had peace been made between the pueblos of the lake and those of the highlands, Both groups must have had recourse to distant frontiers for the means of fulfilling what was universally regarded by the Netwat'laka as an imperative obligation. Human sacrifice, indeed, was understood to be necessary to the cosmic order, for without it the sun, who was conceived as a god of animal nature, subsisting by food and drink, would not merely cease to yield his warmth, but would perish out of the heavens." The importance of the New World to Europe, in the first century after the discovery, chiefly rested on the fact that it was found to be a huge storehouse of gold and silver. To a large extent, its resources in this respect had already been worked by the Aborigines. Gold is the only metal which occurs in its native or unmixed state and is largely found in the debris of those rocks which are most exposed to atmospheric action. It therefore early attracts the attention of savages, who easily apply it to purposes both of use and ornament. And more elaborate working in gold is one of the first arts of advanced life. Silver attracts attention and acquires value from its similarity in most qualities to gold. In Mexico, both metals were regarded as of directly divine origin. The Toltecs or people of Toyen were reputed the earliest workers in gold and silver and As this pueblo was understood to have been founded by Hadnahualacan tribe at least as early as a d seven eighty these metals had been sought and wrought in the Mexican district for at least seven hundred years. There is no reason for concluding. That after being manufactured, they were largely, or indeed at all, exported. Hence the immense accumulations of metallic wealth which were found in the Mexican district, accumulations greedily seized by the conquistadores, and poured through Spanish channels into the mints of Europe, where the stock of gold had probably not been substantially increased since the fall of the Roman Empire. Still, Larger accessions to the mineral wealth of Europe followed the discovery and conquest of Peru, especially after the Spaniards became masters of the mines of Potosi and of New Granada, where an almost savage people had laid up great quantities of the precious metals in the forms of utensils and rude works of art. And from the discovery and conquest of these richly endowed countries and the plunder of their stored-up wealth date the serious efforts of European nations other than Spain and Portugal to acquire territory in the New World. Twenty-five years passed between Colombo's discovery and the first intelligence of Mexico. During this period, Spanish America was limited to the four greater Antilles, Española, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Jamaica, On the northern shore of the South American continent, in what is now Venezuela, attempts had been made to effect a lodgment, but in vain. This district, and indeed the continent generally, was long regarded as a mere field for slave raiding, the captives being sold in Española and Cuba. The smaller islands, and the other adjacent continental coasts, remained unconquered and uncolonized much as on the opposite side of the Atlantic, the Canaries and the Madeira group were parceled into feudal estates and parishes, while the neighboring shore of Africa remained unattempted. The Spaniards, wholly new to their task, had to gain experience as colonists in a savage land. Often, their settlements were founded on ill-chosen sites. When Isabella, Colombo's first colony in Hispaniola, had to be abandoned San Domingo was founded on the opposite side of the island, 1494. The site of this, again, was changed by Ovando, the successor of Colombo, after his removal from the administration, 1502. And the same thing happened at Santiago de los Caballeros. Of the 18 towns founded in the early years of colonization, a century later, only 10 survived. A few towns were founded in Puerto Rico by Ovando, Cuba was colonized by Diego Valesquez and Jamaica by Juan de Esquivel. But the settlements in both were few and unprosperous. Santiago de Cuba, having in the course of a few years, become almost deserted. Sugar was the only crop yielding profits. Gold was procured in the smallest quantities. The best investment was to take over horned cattle turn them loose to breed, and hunt the savage herd for its hides and tallow, which were shipped for sale to Europe. By such means, and by mercilessly tasking the Indians as laborers in field and mine, many emigrants in time became rich men, and looked eagerly round for new and wider fields of adventure. Slave raiding on the continental coasts was a favorite employment and a certain quantity of gold was readily bartered for trifles by the natives, wherever the Spaniards landed. And by these pursuits, the Cuban colonists at length reached the coast pueblos of Yucatan, which were comparatively recent outposts of Nehuatlakan advancement. Velazquez, the governor of Cuba in 1518, sent a squadron of vessels to reconnoiter this coast more fully. Grijalva, who commanded, traced the shoreline as far as the Tierra Caliente of Mexico and reached Veracruz, then, as now, the port of Mexico. Here, carib seamen shipped the surplus tributes and manufactured products of the Lake Pueblos for barter in the southern parts of their extensive field of navigation. From Veracruz, Grijalva coasted northwards as far as the Panuco River. Many large pueblos, were described in the distance. The names of Mexico and of Mochekusoma, its Tlatuhuani, speaker in the sense of commander or supreme chief, first fell on Spanish ears. And the description of the Great Lake Pueblo was listened to with more interest because in these parts, the exploring party obtained by barter an immense quantity of gold. Here at length, Signs of civilized life were found. Large hopes of wealth, whether by commerce or plunder, were excited. And on the return of the expedition, Velasquez ordered a new one to proceed thither without delay. His design was simply to prosecute the remunerative trade which Grijalva had begun. Others formed bolder schemes. And his secretary and treasurer, probably in collusion with the schemers, persuaded him to entrust the command to Hernán Cortés, who had conceived the plan of employing the whole military force of Santiago de Cuba at his disposal in invading Mexico and subjugating it at one blow. This Cortés accomplished only by fortune's favor, for he knew nothing of the imminent peril he was rashly encountering, and his force barely escaped annihilation the landing of Cortez and his safe progress through a difficult country to the frontier of Tlaxcalyan were facilitated by the circumstance that the people of the country, who had groaned for the greater part of a century under the cruel tyranny of Mexico, welcomed him everywhere as a deliverer. The coast tribes mistook him for the ancient Toltec god Quetzalcoatl. The Tlaxcalytecs who had never beheld a friendly force on their borders, at first mistook him for an ally of the Mexicans. But on learning the true aspect of affairs, they joined him as allies. Thus Cortes, from the territory of tlaxcalan as his base, conducted his campaign against the Lake Pueblos with the help of auxiliaries who possessed a complete knowledge of the country and a military experience gained by a century's constant fighting. At first, he posed as a friendly emissary of the great European monarch, his master. Having on these terms obtained admittance to Mexico for himself and his armed force, he seized the Tlatuhuanese person, put him in chains, and assumed the government. These proceedings naturally led to a rising on the part of the Mexican warriors, who attacked the Spaniards and drove them from the Pueblo with great loss, taking many prisoners and sacrificing them to the Nahuatlacan gods. Driven ignominiously from Mexico and chased by an infuriated enemy through and out of the valley, Cortes retired by a circuitous route to Tlaxcalan and laid his plans anew. Having refreshed his troops and renewed his supplies, he built two brigantines for action on the lake, launched them from Tezcuco, which he occupied with little difficulty, assaulted Mexico by water, gained possession of its streets and buildings by slow degrees, and at length broke the resolute resistance of its warriors and raised its clay-built edifices to the ground. He had won for the Castilian crown the dominion of the confederated Lake Pueblos, a tract of country extending from the Pacific to the Mexican Gulf 800 miles in length on the Pacific shore and somewhat less on the other, comprising many large towns and above 500 agricultural villages and the seat of the most advanced communities of the New World. This conquest was no barren victory over mere barbarians. Though no ethnologist would concede to the Nahualakan polity the title of a civilization, It possessed the foundations on which all civilization is built, a numerous and docile peasantry, an organized system of labor, and physical elements adequate to wealth production. In these circumstances, a unique social state had been evolved, to which the nearest analog in the old world is the gross barbarism of Ashanti or Dahomey. It was lower than these in that, except man himself, There were no animals kept for labor, nor were any kept for food except for man and the dog. In other respects, the arts of life were better developed, and to the superficial observation of the conquistadores, the large territory dominated by the Lake Pueblos had an aspect sufficiently civilized to justify them in giving it the name of New Spain." What was of most importance in the eye of the European invaders, it possessed stores of the precious metals which had been accumulating in the hands of dominant tribes for seven centuries. Immense quantities of treasure steadily poured henceforth into Spain, and America assumed an entirely new aspect for the nations of Western Europe. Almost from the first, Spain perceived that other European powers would dispute with her, and perhaps one day wrest from her, the possession of the rich new world which accident had given to her. The conquest of Mexico nearly corresponded with the opening of a period of hostility between Spain and France, which lasted, though with considerable intermissions, from 1521 to 1556. Cortes, who entered Mexico in the former year, dispatched at the end of 1522 two vessels to Spain laden with Mexican treasure. Giovanni de Verasano, a Florentine in the French service, captured these near the Azores. At about the same time, took a large vessel homeward bound from Hispaniola, laden with treasure, pearls, sugar, and hides. Enriched by these prizes, He gave large complimentary presents to the French king and high admiral, and general amazement was felt at the wealth which was pouring into Spain from its transatlantic possessions. The emperor, Francis exclaimed, can carry on the war against me by means of the riches he draws from the West Indies alone. Of the immense inheritance obtained by Spain in America, the only parts actually reduced to possession by the Spanish monarch were the four great Antilles, and those portions of the continent which had been settled by the Nahuatlaca. Southward, the shores from Yucatan, as far as the Plate River, had been explored by Spain and Portugal, and all that seemed to remain to the future adventurer was the North American shore from the Mexican Gulf to Newfoundland. Jocosely, refusing to acknowledge the claim of the peninsular powers, to make a bipartite decision of the spheres between them until they should produce the will of Adam, constituting them his universal heirs, Francis commissioned the successful Florentine captain to reconnoiter the whole shore from Florida to Newfoundland. This being done, he intimated to Europe that he claimed it by right of discovery as the share of France in the great American heritage. He called it New France, a term familiar in French ears since the beginning of the 13th century as the title of the Latin Empire of Constantinople and now less inappropriately applied by transfer to the New World. The commission thus entrusted to and accomplished by Verrazzano was masked under the pretense of seeking a Northwest Passage to the Far East. But its real object was to lay a foundation for the claim of France to the whole of America north of Mexico, put forward in the belief, which ultimately proved well warranted, that this tract would, like Mexico, prove rich in the precious metals. Having completed the voyage by which his name is chiefly remembered, Verrazano resumed the profitable practice of plundering the Spanish homeward bound ships and took some prizes between Spain and the Canaries. On his return, he fell in with a squadron of Spanish war vessels, surrendered to them after a severe engagement, and in 1527, was hanged as a pirate at Colmenar de Arenas. France strenuously maintained, and sought by repeated efforts to substantiate, the right to North America which Verrazzano's coasting voyage was supposed to have acquired. In periods of war, no attempts at possession were made. But in the intervals of peace expeditions were undertaken to the Gulf of Saint Lawrence with the view of exploring the passage to the far east of which it was imagined to be the beginning Cartier made two voyages for this purpose in fifteen thirty four and fifteen thirty five and in fifteen forty he sailed up the great river of Canada and selected a site for the colony which in fifteen forty two Robeval attempted to establish. Cartier brought to France news of the two principal native nations of North America, nations on which later French settlers bestowed the names Iroquois and Algonquin, each being a purely French word embodying a peculiarity in the sound of their respective languages. The Algonquins, who were the earlier immigrants, were partially cultivators of the soil but chiefly relied for subsistence on hunting and fishing. The more advanced Iroquois, who appear to have driven the Algonquins from the choicest parts of their territory, had nearly reached the stage in which agriculture is the main source of subsistence, though they were accomplished hunters and formidable warriors, and their compact territory was parceled out among five tribes who formed the confederation so well-known in later history as the Five Nations. Though Roberval's attempt failed, the example thus set was followed in a later generation in other latitudes, and other nations were encouraged to imitate it. Meanwhile, the aspect of American enterprise was greatly modified, and the effect produced by the discovery of the treasures of Mexico greatly enhanced by the discovery and conquest of Peru, the richest district of the new world hitherto revealed. Here again, we are struck by the comparatively modern date of the aboriginal dominion which the Spanish adventurers found established along the coast and in the valleys of the Andes. This dominion, of which the center was at Cusco, was very much more extensive than that of the federated Mexican pueblos. Unlike the Nahuatlaca, the Peruvian people had no reckoning of years, nor can the date of any fact in Peruvian history anterior to the conquest be accurately ascertained. All that we know is that the settlement of the nation or people who then dominated the Sierra and the coast from Cusco, where the traditions of their arrival were still fresh, was of comparatively modern date. They called themselves Inca, or People of the Sun, Inti. They were probably an offshoot from a large group of warlike tribes, in which the Tupi Guarani were included, long settled on the margins of the vanished Argentine Sea and of a chain of great lakes to the north of it, where they subsisted by fishing and hunting. From this district, they ascended to the Sierra, where the Huanaco and the Vacuña, two small cognate species of the camel genus, furnished abundant food and material for clothing. These they domesticated as the Llama and Paco, both being Quichua words implying subjugation. They propagated by art the pulse and food roots of the Cordillera and established many permanent pueblos in and near the Great Lake Basin of Titicaca, the earliest seat of Peruvian advancement. From this district, they advanced northwards and occupied a canton almost impregnably situated in the midst of immense mountains and deep gorges known to geographers as the Cusco district. In historical times, they had separated into two branches, speaking two languages, evidently divergent forms of a single original, called by Spanish grammarians as Aymara and Quichua names which it has been found convenient to use as ethnical terms for peoples who spoke them. Tradition carried back the history of the Aymara-Kichua in Cusco and its neighborhood about 300 years, during which 11 apu Capac Incas, or head chiefs of the Inca people, were enumerated. But it was generally considered and is almost conclusively shown by balancing evidence that not much more than a century had elapsed since they made their first conquests beyond the limited Cusco district, and that only the last five of the apu Capac Incas, Wiracocha Inca, Pachacutec Inca, Tupac Inca Yapanqui, huayna Capac Inca, and tupac Atao hualpa all forming a chain of succession from father to son, had ruled over an extensive territory. The great expansion took place in the time of the Pachacutic Inca and is traceable to an invasion by an alliance of tribes from the north who had long dominated middle Peru and now sought to conquer the Cusco district and the valley of Lake Titicaca. Under Pachacutic, this invasion was repelled. The Allies were defeated at Yahuapampa and the war was carried into the enemy's country. The dominion of the invading tribes now fell almost at one blow into the hands of the chiefs of Cusco. These victories were rapidly followed by the conquest of the northern or Quito district, now forming the Republic of Ecuador, and of the Coast Alleys, where a remarkable and superior advancement founded on fishing and agriculture, had existed probably from an earlier date than that of the stronger tribes of the Sierra. The Spaniards, who obtained information of the Inca people and their dominion soon after crossing the Isthmus of Panama, reconnoitered the Peruvian coast in 1525 during the head chieftaincy of Huayna Capac. But this chief had died, and a civil war in which the succession was contested between his two sons, Tupac Cusihuapa, the son makes joy, commonly known by the epithet Huascar, the chosen one, and Tupac Atalhuapa, the son makes good fortune, had been terminated in favor of the latter when Pizarro invaded the country in 1532 with a party of one hundred eighty three soldiers. Everywhere, large accumulations of treasure were found, for gold and silver had been mined both in the coast pueblos and in the Sierra from remote times, and the whole of the produce still remained, largely accumulated in the numerous burial places of a people who preserved with almost Egyptian care the corpses of the dead, depositing with them the gold and silver which had belonged to them when alive. The facilities for marching which a century of well-organized aboriginal rule had established from one end of the dominion to the other, and in several places between the coast and the mountains, made Pizarro's progress easy. So, soon as the supreme chief had been seized and imprisoned or put to death, the submission of his followers and the subjugation of his territory quickly followed. But it was an easier task for the vile and sordid adventurers who invaded Peru to destroy the tyranny of its aboriginal conquerors and sack its pueblos, than for the Spanish government to assert the authority of the crown and provide the Inca dominion with a suitably organized administration. After much bloodshed, extending over many years, this was at length accomplished. The lands which had belonged to the Inca, the sun, or the native chiefs, and the peasantry were with their peasant inhabitants, chiefly serfs attached to the soil, granted by the crown to gentlemen immigrants, and held on similar terms to those annexed to the commands of the military orders, the name Command indeed, becoming the technical term for estates so held. Here, as in Mexico, churches were built and endowed, diocesan organizations were established, and the difficult work of converting the Indians was begun and earnestly carried on by a devoted clergy. Superior courts of justice were constituted, and law was administered in the village by alcaldes. The aboriginal population, freed from the grinding tyranny of their old masters, increased and throve. New mines, especially of silver, were discovered and wrought. Both Peru and Mexico gradually assumed the resemblance of civilized life, and their prosperity testified to the benefits conferred on them by conquests which, however unjustifiable on abstract grounds, in both cases redeemed the populations affected by them from cruel and oppressive governments and bloody and senseless religions. After the conquest of Peru, the treasure sent by America to Spain was trebled the silver mines of Europe were practically abandoned, and before long, Europe's entire gold supply was obtained from the New World. In these circumstances, the naval enterprise not only of the enemies, but of the political rivals of Spain, was stimulated to assume the form of piracy, and in this connection, a peculiar cause came into operation about this time which had a strongly modifying effect on the destinies of the New World. Both Charles V and his son and successor in Spain, Philip II, had constituted themselves the champions of the Catholic Church, and they freely employed the gold of America in the pursuit of intrigues favorable to their policy in every European country. Hence, to cut off the supply at its source became the universal policy of Protestantism, now struggling for life throughout Western Europe. The persecution of the Huguenots drove large numbers of fresh Protestants to join the roving captains who harnessed Spanish commerce, and their efforts, begun in time of war, were continued in time of peace. Thus did the French wars with Spain develop into a general war on the part of the Protestants of Western Europe against Spain as the new champion of the papacy and the author of the Inquisition. In the New World, this movement resulted in the plundering of Spanish vessels, attacks on the Spanish ports with the object of holding them to ransom, and finally attempts, unsuccessful at first, but effectual when experience in colonization had once been gained— to found new European communities in the teeth of all opposition on the soil of a continent which the Spaniards regarded as most justly their own, and as before all things entrusted to them for the diffusion and the ultimate extension over the whole globe of the Catholic faith. End of Section 6